Psalm 67. You know, in the New Testament we see examples and we see that the public reading of Scripture was done. And that's what we're going to do today. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase, God. Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Well, good morning. Let me give a a plug here at the beginning on our Change for Children. And so, you know, we have a new feature this time, and it's the Roundup. And so if you, if you go to their website and you enroll in the, the Roundup, what it does is it connects to uh, like a debit card, or I guess you can connect to a credit card. I'm not sure you can. And so uh, I connected my debit card, and then I set uh, like a ceiling amount, you know, up to this much. And so what it did, is, and I was curious at how this was going to work, so this is for May, and so I kept watching, you know, when's it, when's it going to come through? Is it going to, you know, the last day of May, first day of June? So it happened yesterday. And so uh, 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 what it does is it takes your purchases on that particular card and say you bought something for $9.70 and you set a $10 cap. And so that $0.30 cents goes, rounds up to that, that next dollar amount and goes towards your $10 cap. That makes sense. So it, it rounds up the dollar, and so it worked beautifully. And so I got a notification, uh, you know, on my phone that said, "Hey, thank you for your, you know, your gift this month." And here's the child, one of the children that, that you're helping. And so it gave, like Micah said, gave a picture of the child and a little synopsis uh, of kind of who they were, uh, some information about them. So I just want to say, if you've been wondering about that. It, it works beautifully. And so I would encourage you to do it. It's a, a very easy way to, uh, to participate in Change for Children, uh, although we still want rattling cans around too. So, uh, but just know, take advantage of it. So I've tried it. It worked. And uh, I, was, I was pleased. So uh, there, there's a story that was told about an Eastern man who practiced uh, asceticism. And so it's uh, this severe self-discipline and and this rejection of all forms of indulgence. And so he would cover himself with ashes as a sign of humility all over. And he regularly sat on a prominent street in his city. And so it was a place where tourists would come through. And and when tourists would come through, as they do, they they would want a picture. And so they want to get a selfie with, with this man. And so when they would ask permission to take a picture, he would rearrange the ashes on his person, on his face and body, to make him look the, the, the most destitute, the, the greatest picture of humility. He would pose himself uh, to look like this, this picture of humility. And I was thinking about that because a great deal of religion amounts to nothing more than rearranging religious ashes to impress the world with our supposed humility and devotion. 
And so the problem, of course, is that humility is a sham when it's that way. The devotion is to self and not to God. And so this kind of religion is not pure and undefiled. Rather, it's nothing more than than a game of pretense. It was a game at which the scribes and the Pharisees were very good at. It's what they practiced on a regular basis. might even say they were masters at it in Jesus' day. And so their religion had become mostly an act. It was a mockery of what God had revealed as His way, His expectation to to honor Him. And so Jesus' most blistering call-outs were reserved for these scribes and Pharisees, these, these portrayers of righteousness. And so when we read through the Scriptures, especially the New Testament, we have a tendency to, to read about people and to read about situations and we read the rebukes and we read those as if they were addressed towards unbelievers. You know, this is all written for, for those people who don't believe in Christ, who aren't following God. But the letters, when you get into it, the letters especially are written to Christians who either needed correcting of the way they were acting or maybe clarification of the way that that they should be acting, or commendation, maybe encouragement, to continue to act the way that they are, the way they should be living. And so if someone asks you, as a Christian, what is your purpose in life? What is your purpose in life now that you are a Christian? I feel pretty certain I would hear a collective answer that that it's to glorify God. I mean, that would be our, our purpose, right? We would see that. The harder question is, what does that look like? What does it look like to glorify God? And this is the conundrum, I think, that, that this God-following party of the Pharisees uh, created for themselves and for those that were looking to them for their leadership. And so the Pharisees were clearly guilty of doing things for the praise of others, to be seen by others. And so common religious practices like giving and praying, maybe fasting, had become a spectacle a show for those around. And so many of the Jews considered keeping the law through these specific practices that that is proof of your superior devotion and your righteousness. So you look to those actions as to how holy you are, how righteous you are, how in good standing you are with God. And so what would you think then with that mindset? What would you think about someone who seemed to be honoring these practices on a consistent basis and at a high level. Man, their ashes are always in the perfect place, right? Their their prayers are spot on. What would you think about someone like that? They must be a saint, right? If you've got this mindset, that's what we think to varying degrees. What is a faithful Christian? Well, we might say, well, it's, it's one who's in the building. Every time the doors are open, that's a faithful Christian. We might say that a faithful Christian is someone who volunteers for every ministry and then shows up for what they volunteered to do. If we're not careful, we can categorize Christian faithfulness based on accomplishments. And so we, we begin this, this list and we kind of start comparing people and each other and ourselves. And so why did Jesus begin this Sermon on the Mountainside? With blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Why would He begin this with blessed are the poor in spirit? If not blessed are the high and mighty. Blessed are the got it all together. Blessed are the never miss a beats. Blessed are the always know what to do. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's because the attitude of a humble heart that characterizes the people that, 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 whom Jesus, by His grace, invited into His kingdom. 
Those are kingdom residents. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, Be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So in September 1997, Ted Turner, many of you may know, very famous, hands in all kinds of of media stuff back in the the 80s and 90s. So in 97, Ted Turner announced that he was giving a billion dollars to the United Nations. A billion dollars. And so for him, it probably wasn't much, right? But this billion dollar amount was based on his Time Warner stock, the increase that it had shown over the last, you know, previous nine months. So he was kind of given the surplus of that, his earnings from it. And so he admitted himself that he was giving away only a third of that wealth. But however you look at it, making this decision to give away a third of your assets is remarkable, no matter how, what amount that is or what that, how that relates to you. And so consider what he gave it to. He didn't give it to some typical causes that we see that, that benefit the mega wealthy. He didn't give it to, you know, not to the, the Turner Museum in some lucky city. He didn't give it to, to, to make a Turner chair at some prominent university, not to endow some, some professor there. He didn't give it to create a spacious sports stadium with skyboxes so his name could be on that. There was no palatial performing arts center that he gave this money to. He, he dedicated his dollars to food and to shelter and to medical care and to clean water for the most needy. What a noble avenue to send this money to. And then he dared his fellow billionaires to follow suit, and he said this to them. He said, if you are rich, you can expect a call or a letter from me. And so then he put a charge out. I want you, y'all do the same. You see what I did? Y'all do the same. And all this is very credible. However, it's also interesting on a deeper level. And so while being very generous, he still wanted to make sure that everybody knew. Everybody knew. And so before making the gift, he called Larry King. And Larry King used to have a pretty popular uh, show, very newsworthy. You know, he got news out of celebrities and what was happening and entertainment and, and the world around. And so he called Larry King and he said, hey, this is about to happen. So Larry King got the word out. And then Turner made his formal announcement in New York City in a, a palatial ballroom filled with tuxedos and, and beautiful evening gowns and reporters and cameras. He announced this. And I'm not judging Turner's motives. I'm just observing his actions. But Jesus is in the position to do both for us. And so it's not enough to merely conform to God's rules of external behavior. So He also wants us to change on the inside. It's an inward change. And in fact, that's where the seeds of change germinate. So to be conformed to Christ is to share His heart. And although Jesus insists that certain behaviors are utterly vital for a life of faith, His greater point is that righteousness encompasses the focus and the state of mind that motivates our actions, that sustains our actions. And so He goes on, Be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. And He says, merely. Merely. That's a weird word, right? A weird English word. But it's a new English translation that I use, and I like it because it captures here the original text intent very well. Merely. 
It's not, do not do good things where anyone can see them. It's not what he's saying here. It's not about, don't be secret Santa that lasts 12 months out of the year. It's not about being anonymous Christian either. Merely. It's for the purpose of. There's a purpose here with the sole intent of being seen by others. Don't put your generosity forward so that others will notice. And what's the danger of doing things for the motivation and the the purpose of receiving praise and the admiration of others? What danger is there in that? Well, Jesus goes on to say, otherwise you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So if we're being Christian, quote, so so that others will think of us in a certain way, or if we're we're, we're being Christian to gain approval from, from a certain people or certain groups in certain circumstances, certain circles of society, then whatever accolades, whatever admiration, whatever attention, whatever adoration we receive from those that we're trying to impress, then Jesus says that's the only reward you should expect. Because God's not going to bless a heart like that. And then Jesus goes on to flesh this out some more. Thus, whatever you do, charitable giving, don't blow a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in synagogues and on streets so that people will praise them. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. But when you do your giving, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your gift may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And let me say, if there's a a problem with this going on at Summers Avenue right now, I don't know about it. I'm not aware of it. I haven't perceived it. haven't heard of any situation. This congregation has a, a generational history of generosity. And it seems to just keep perpetuating itself, regenerating itself. You are givers. And you're quiet givers. But I would offer this. If you're worried about violating a command of God in these particular verses when you give, if you're worried about that, then I would suggest that you are far from that sin. Because Jesus is calling out people who hadn't given a second thought to whether or not they were dishonoring God. Their calculations were based on, how is this going to benefit me? And so merely to be seen, trumpet blowing, so that people will take notice and will praise them. That was their... Their reason for doing it. And so how does Jesus make the contrast between this attitude of self-promotion and one of humility? How, how do we see the contrast in that? He says it's, it's as if your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. And that's bizarre, right? Sometimes we feel that way in marriage. <laughs> I didn't know you were doing that. But you think about it just in your body. You know, how, how can you not know what your left and right is doing? Well, that's the mindset that He wants us to have when we give, when we serve, when we do for others. And so I think this should be taken as, as a contrast to the pharisaical approach of blowing trumpets and announcing to everybody and not a formula for how to give. Don't see a formula in this. Jesus is trying to get them away from a formula. That's what's gotten them to this point. And so when you see a need and you can help with the need, then help with the need. Just do it. And giving wasn't the only area where their self-righteousness was trying to to show off their godliness. And so he goes on here in verse 5, Whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray while standing in synagogues and on street corners so that people can see them. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, close the door, 
and pray to your Father in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not babble repetitiously like the Gentiles, because they think that by their many words they will be heard. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And God is not tunnel-visioned, tunnel-eared on the words that we say. He's not so focused on the words that we are offering up to Him in prayer. Scripture tells us that we will be accountable for the words that we say, but God works from the inside out. God looks at the heart. He listens to our heart because the issues of life flow from the heart. He listens to our heart because out of the abundance of our heart, our mouth speaks. That's where it starts. And and He also listens to our heart because children... And adults, sometimes we use use words that we have no idea what they mean, right? So God can sort through that. That's not what you meant. I see your heart. I know what you meant. So the key here is in verse 7. They think that God will hear them if they use a lot of religious language. And so they focus on that. They they believe that God requires a, a higher degree of communication skills in order to understand us lesser humans. And that's how they approach Him. And so these religious hypocrites were apparently impressive because they were good at this. They were real good at it. And because these wordsmiths thought that God only responded to the well-educated and the well-spoken, then the people who were not, they believed that, you know, maybe the reason that God doesn't answer my prayer is because I can't pray like them. Maybe the reason God doesn't answer my prayer is because I'm not as Christian as they are. So those are the seeds of Satan that their actions are planting into the minds and the hearts of these these poor people who are wanting to serve God. So why even pray at all, they would think. So they had created this barrier to God that God had never authorized, He never erected, and He has never accepted And so we must be careful not to elevate someone's spiritual social status by focusing on things like this. And so we have different natural abilities. And many of us have developed over time abilities that weren't so natural. We've gotten better at stuff. The Apostle Paul struggles with this. He writes a letter to Christians around a city called Colossae. And in part of this letter, he reminds them that the kingdom of God, there is no class distinction. There is no hierarchy among the residents of the kingdom of God. There's no educational pedigrees that you have to achieve. There's no expectation or need for that. And so in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, he says, Here, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all. Christ is all we need. And He is in all. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In word or deed, it's all for the glory of Christ. That's the reason. That's the purpose. That's what we're trying to achieve. And so all these religious performers that Jesus was calling out, they're doing all this for their own glory. To build themselves up. And not just build themselves up, to to feel themselves being built up by those around them. It was a status deal. And so those who were trying to to present themselves as uber-religious, 
They had, in fact, by their external focus on actions and and abilities, they had failed to deal with the sin in their heart, the sin that was condemning the very religious actions that they were trying so hard to perform. And so all the good, all the, the holy, all the service, all of the religion was in vain because of sin. The sin that they had. They were doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And so Jesus says in in John chapter 15, He says, I'm the vine. You are the branches. The one who abides in Me, that person's going to bear much fruit. I will abide in them. And just watch what I produce through them. Because apart from Me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And so giving and fasting and praying, those are some of the the very means that Jesus has provided for us to be able to deepen our relationship with Him and give us the strength to fulfill all that He expects us to do. So they're blessings. And we don't get that strength from sheer willpower. We don't get that from our accomplishments. We get that from humble dependence upon Him. And so that's why this attitude of being a spiritual show-off, it undermines the strength of Christ. And instead, it elevates our own false strength. And so the world's value system elevates the individual above the community. But God's kingdom value elevates community above the individual. And so these actors Jesus was calling out here used their religion to improve their relationship with people whose approval they really wanted. But those relationships were built on this false identity. It was ID theft, right? And so they're no more genuine than the scenes portrayed by actors on a stage. That's where we get the word hypocrite from. It's from an actor, a stage actor, playing a character. And so the most important thing to remember about giving and prayer is that these were intended first and foremost to improve our relationship with God. They are opportunities. They are gifts from God for us to grow closer to Him. That's what they're intended for. He's our focus. He's our king. It's his kingdom, right? And so jump down to verse 16 here in Matthew 6. When you fast, do not look sullen like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that people will see them fasting. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. This is the idea of, you know, you're bebopping around the house and, you know, somebody shows up and, and you know, you're all of a sudden you're like, oh. How you been? Well, I just haven't been good. How about you? Things are tough. You know, it's that whole mindset of just, just like that. Changing, changing what's really going on to try to elicit some response from someone else. So fasting is a discipline. It's a discipline. It's been around the world since long before God called Abraham. Different cultures, different reasons. Fasting transcends cultures, although different cultures have used it for different purposes. And so in this time recorded by Matthew, fasting was a prominent spiritual discipline that was observed in Judaism for for different reasons. But the purpose, ultimate purpose of fasting was to improve the relationship between man and God. And one way you do that is by removing the escape from food. I mean, what do we do when we get nervous or anxious, when we're bored, whatever? you You go to something, right? Well, I go to food. That's a good one. So remove food from the equation. Now what do I do? I don't have my outlet. I don't have my safety net. I only have God. And so it brings the focus back into God. And so the purpose was to improve the relationship between God and man. And so as the body rumbled, 
reminding the one who truly provides for the body, then the focus is back on God. So focus was a reset. It, 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 fasting was a reset. It was a, a refocus of, of our minds, the attitudes, refocus on the giver of life. And in the very leadership circle of God's kingdom, fasting had been turned into a focus on me and not a focus on God. So can you see the pattern here that Jesus is addressing? And so something that was supposed to be, Lord, have mercy on me, had devolved into, Lord, have mercy, would you look at me? That's the change in attitude, right? And so when you fast, Jesus says, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others when you are fasting, but only to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so we would say to somebody, get a shower, clean yourself up. That's what we would say. That's all this is. And at first glance, Jesus seems to be talking out of both sides of His mouth. Because you remember back in chapter 5? What has He told His followers? He exhorts them to, to be completely conspicuous in doing goods. Be conspicuous followers of God in the same way that a well-lit city stands out when it's up on a hill, right? And then we come here to chapter 6, which is all part of the same teaching about the kingdom of God. And now Jesus says we're to be completely inconspicuous. We're to be unnoticed, covert. We fly under the radar with this. So what's going on here? Are we to be salt and light? Are we to be low sodium and lights out? What's it supposed to be here? The answer is yes to both. We're to be both. And so at the end of the day, this life in God's kingdom is always about the motives and the intentions of our heart. That's what God is always after. To create in us the kind of kingdom heart that wants to obey and one that is bent towards obeying Him. And and we find our joy and our satisfaction in doing that. And so with that, God is forever condemning religious types in Scripture. Religious types whose hearts and motives are crooked and they're bent towards self. Selfish. And so this bunch of hyper-religious scribes and Pharisees here, they made sure that the broader community saw just how seemingly righteous they were. And so Jesus is simply acknowledging a truth that's as old as Adam and Eve. And Jeremiah captured this when he wrote in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And so the the question isn't, Oh no, I hope I wasn't seen doing a good deed. But rather, am I doing a good deed in order to be seen? That's the difference there. And so uncovering our motives is a tricky thing for blind-eyed people like us. And so when Jesus says, beware, He isn't providing a caution and a warning. More so, He's calling us to action. He's saying, be aware. Pay attention. Think about your motives. Why are you doing this? Because life in Christ is a a healthy, vibrant life. And it should be one that's full of reflection. We should measure ourselves, the condition of our hearts. We need to pay attention to how we're thinking and, and the motives behind our actions. And we need to be confessing our sins. Confess our sins to the God who convicts us of those sins. And so Martin Luther and the 16th century priest who sparked the, the renewed interest in, in, a, in a central truths of Christianity even stood against his own Catholic religion. He said this, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope whose name is Self. So 
So I, I, I am sometimes more afraid, should be more afraid, of my own ability to destroy myself than of God's reason to destroy me, even though He doesn't. Because I'm the greatest danger to me. Isaiah writes this, 42 and verse 8, I am the Lord, that is My name. I will not share My glory with anyone else or the praise due Me with idols. So we come across this word glory and it's a rich biblical term and it refers to everything that is right and majestic and full of splendor and beautiful in the sight of God. And it's everything wrapped up into God. God's glory is everything that makes our life worth living. And so it is in fact why we live and why we exist, the glory of God. Let us create man in our image. Let's create man in our glory to project and to radiate and to reflect and to remind us, God says, of how glorious it is to be the Creator of all things. So we've been created in such a way that our deepest satisfaction is supposed to come from recognizing the glory and the splendor of God and then reflecting it back to God. We do that through our lives, through our actions. But, through and after the aftershocks of Eden, we perverted all of that. That's what sin does. And so rather than giving God the glory that He's entirely due, we want some of it for ourselves. We want some glory too. And so we exalt ourselves and we look for the approval of of others and we esteem the praise of others. And few of us do this explicitly. Few of us do it overtly. I mean, rarely do you see someone jumping up and down and waving their hands and shouting, you like me, like me, right? Applaud me, love me. We just do it in a thousand subtle ways. One of the ways we can do that is through our sort of social media. And so, post. Hey, yo, just took my boys out for a dad and boys froho. Hashtag, best dad ever, right? Right? Like that? Best dad. Oh, you are the best dad ever. So we do stuff like that. Hey, post. Read Romans 1 through 3 today in my Bible reading plan. Man, I tell you, Paul got me tapping out. Hashtag varsity Christian. Hashtag not ashamed. So we're pretty subtle about it. And don't get me wrong, sharing life through social media is not a bad thing in principle, right? It's not. And it's definitely more interesting than reading the old boring bumper stickers when I was growing up. You know, my kid's an honor roll student. Nobody wants to read a bumper sticker. Put it on a post with a flashy picture and maybe, a, you know, you guys, a, a gif, gif, whatever that thing is there, you know, that moves around. And, you know, that's more interesting. But we have to continue to ask ourselves, what are my motives? What are my motives? There's a difference between hoping that grandma sees this ten states away versus... How many people can I get to respond to this, to build me up so that I feel better about myself? There's a difference there. So continue to ask, what are my motives? The Apostle Paul himself had to keep questioning and checking himself as he traveled and he preached and he wrote and he taught. And he asked himself in Galatians chapter 1, in verse 10, he said, Am I now trying to gain the approval of people or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave to Christ. And so every one of us has the tendency to be proud and to be puffed up in our own hearts. We've got that. We understand that. We fight with that. Even if no one saw the good works we did, we build ourselves up. Oh, yeah, but you're better. 
So we wrestle with that. We receive a glory from ourselves. We pat ourselves on the back. But here's the thing. Following Christ does not require impressing others. It's not a condition of. It's not a prerequisite for. It doesn't keep you in His graces. Impressing others. This is freedom in Christ. We are free from, from the, the, the sinful pressures of the world and the attitudes within ourselves that, that we struggle to try to impress other people. You are free from that in Christ. And this is a paradoxical idea too, to be free in Christ but a slave to Christ. So every day at work, at home, at school, sports, at the doctor's office, we may feel like we've got to impress others with our abilities. But the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom that we have in the kingdom of God is that we do not have to try to impress God. That's freedom. Because He loves you and He adores you for the beautiful creation that you are. He wants only to be glorified. And when that happens, it glorifies us too. And we can glorify God when we surrender the dependence on ourselves and to prove our own worth. We can glorify God when we humbly submit our lives to Christ and we find our worth in Him. And we need only make the glory of God the focus of our lives and then just embrace the simplicity of living in the kingdom of God. Man, we make things so much more complicated than God wants us to. It has to frustrate Him because the whole time He's thinking... I'm just trying to release you from this. Don't go back to it. Don't keep holding on to it. And nowhere I think is that expressed any better than the instruction from Jesus on how not just the words of our prayer should sound, because it's more than that. It's more than just the words. It's on the God-focused nature of our lives. So listen to this from Jesus. Pray this way. Our Father in Heaven, may Your name be honored. May Your kingdom come. May Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You, God, give us today our daily bread. And You, Lord, forgive us our debts as we ourselves have forgiven our debtors. And You, God, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And praise God that our salvation never has, never will rest on how little we eat or how much we give but solely rest on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is it. It's His poverty. It's His literal sacrificial giving of His very life that makes us abundantly rich with all these beautiful things in this new life, these unfathomable blessings. And so we can't and we don't need to earn His favor or somehow pay Him back through some religious ritual. But we get to respond to Him. We're invited to respond, to celebrate Him and His glory and give Him glory for His great mercy. And we do that through living a life that reflects the goodness and the mercy and the love of God towards each other. And the ways of religious folk have a tendency to bring out self-centeredness. So we've got to check that. And ironically, we can parade around our ungodliness. The godly people parade around the most ungodliness sometimes. And so we give and we live in such a way that the glory and our attitude for our actions all goes solely to God. God who gives. 
God who makes possible. God who gives us the strength to overcome. Strength to persevere. Who joins Himself to us so that we may make His joy complete. And we do that in His eternal kingdom. And we can do that today in His kingdom come. So who are you trying to impress? Who are you trying to satisfy? There's only one. There's only one. And He's already impressed. He's impressed that you've called Him God. And yet, even today, maybe your head is hung in shame. God wants to reach down with His hand and lift your chin and say, Child, child, I love you. I love you because I created you. And I will help you overcome what this barrier is that you've created between me and you. That's our God. He calls us to come to Him. It's the God that put on flesh, that, that lowered Himself, received no accolades, rejection at every turn, all the way to the cross. For even the feeling as He hung on that cross, His Father could not look at Him as if His back were turned. And yet Christ came for us. Not to burden us with trying to live up to some standard but to free us to live in Christ, strengthened by His Spirit, forgiven by His grace and mercy, clothed in the blood of the Lamb. This morning, you can be baptized into Christ and receive that gift from Him. We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. If we can help you in any way this morning in your walk with Christ, will you come as we sing?